This is Orlin Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Mira Garcia. She's CEO of New Columbia Startup Lantern Laboratory, and also former Chief Medical Officer of Advantia Health. She'll be talking to us today about the limitations of what anesthesiologists can know about our brains while in surgery, how her new startup provides far more information for anesthesiologists, how despite her impressive background in human health, she had to learn the entrepreneurial skills she needed before launching her startup company, and what it's been like to be a female CEO in a male-dominated startup world. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining. Uh, I'll kick us off for this lunch and learn. I'm Cindy Lang, for anyone who's not from CTV on the call, um, member of the Life Sciences licensing team. And it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Mira Garcia. Uh, Dr. Garcia is the co-founder and CEO of Lantern Laboratory, and she will speak to us today about the launch of the startup, uh, navigating the steps in transitioning technology from the university. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more in depth later, but Lantern is building a medical device and software platform using EEG-based biomarkers to guide pharmacological decision-making during anesthesia care based on technologies from Dr. Paul Garcia's lab in the Department of Anesthesiology here at Columbia. Uh, Dr. Garcia, Mira, <laughs> uh, has 20 plus years experience in clinical medicine and healthcare management, and we'll have a chance to learn a little bit more about her story and her journey so far in launching Lantern. So thanks everybody. And uh, Mira, welcome. Thank you. Maybe uh, the the, you could start by telling us a little bit about your background and how you journeyed from medicine, how you got into medicine and journeyed from that uh, to industry uh, into Lantern today. Yeah, I think that's great. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here today. Um, so I trained as an OBGYN and a pelvic <laughs> reconstructive surgeon. And right out of residency, I went into private practice. And in private practice, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of kind of transition happening between uh, practices coalescing to form single specialty large groups, as well as um, other aspects of the business of medicine, including uh, building surgery centers, mammography suites, um, buying real estate, and so on. And so, um, I ended up really getting involved in that aspect of the business of medicine and grew my private practice along with my other members of the board of directors from 25 doctors to over 150 doctors. So that was the initial foray into business for me in the private practice setting. Clinically, I was noticing that my patients, uh, as they, I did a lot of reconstructive surgeries in older patients, and I found that regardless of the type of surgery I did, even if they were similar, some patients would wake up smiling and be ready to go home within a few hours, while others, you know, ended up spending a lot of time in the hospital. And the first question I think most of us ask ourselves, what am I doing and what can I do differently to get outcomes where everyone's smiling when they wake up and they go home? 
And this was around the time my co-founder, who happens to be my husband, was finishing up medical school, starting, you know, choosing to go into anesthesiology, do, doing his postdoc um, after his PhD in biomedical engineering and figuring out what kind of research he wanted to do. So a lot of our conversations revolved around anesthesia care and the impact of these medications. So my interest in where I am today started a long time ago. Um, professionally, my career, I spent about 20 years, 18 years in private practice, and then at which point uh, Paul and I both got recruited to Columbia to come take academic roles. Uh, Paul came to Columbia as the chief of neuroanesthesiology, and I came to Columbia in a clinical and more of a management role. I was uh, director of women's health services for the Westchester hospitals, and I was um, asked to start a department, OBGYN department in Hudson Valley Hospital, and also to create a robotics program there. So it was kind of a natural kind of progression um, into clinical medicine, uh, into the academic management aspect of clinical medicine. So fast forward from there, um, some of the projects I was working on at Columbia uh, and NYP came to a you know nice close, uh, everything from renovations to setting up the department. And I got recruited into a private equity-backed women's healthcare platform based out of Washington, D.C. And um, I joined as a chief medical officer. And so I was able to tap into some of the work I did at Columbia, but also a lot of the work I did in private practice, everything from mergers and acquisitions to uh, negotiations with insurance companies, physician recruitment and retention, as well as technology transfer and adoption of new technologies uh, in the private private sector. Um, okay, what year, around what time was this that you transitioned from Columbia to um, to private practice? I mean, to the- To company. private equity around 2021. Okay. So 2020, 2021 is when I transitioned. And then um, that was also another excellent experience. And around that time is when uh, Paul started working very closely with CTV and had interest in, you know, developing- uh, a company based out of the patents that he's one of the named inventors of. And it came to a really actually very, it was kind of a neat uh, confluence of ideas and uh, wishes for the second chapter of my life where the commute to DC was getting very onerous. Um, my job was great. Um, however, I was very interested and I've always been very interested in Paul's research and the work that he's been doing because it's, it stays with me in the clinical aspects of my life. And so it seemed like a perfect transition to uh, come back to New York and uh, take on uh, the lead position here at Lantern Laboratory. So. Oh, thank you. Um, that that was a great, great um, background into you and how you got uh, land landed uh, into Lantern um, and how your interest stemmed from some of your early experiences in the clinic. Um, maybe next you could talk a little bit about what are the major problems that Lantern is trying to solve and what, what was the motivation behind uh, some of these technologies from, from Paul in, in the first place? Yep. I think the, uh, a lot of lay people don't understand exactly how anesthesia is administered. Um, when we think of anesthesia as a lay person, we think, oh, you go to sleep and then you wake up. And you also think about how medications are initially titrated to get you off to sleep. But there is an entire period of maintenance of anesthesia 
that involves titration, selection and titration of various potent anesthetic medications, medications that make you forget, you know, amnesia, medications that make you not move, neuromuscular blockade, medications that allow you to be sedated, um, and medications that allow you to not feel pain. And each of these are very, very potent medications that if you don't either get enough of or you get too much of, there can be some significant consequences. And the timing is also very important. For example, you never want to neuromuscularly blockade someone before you have them sedated, because that means you're paralyzing them, but they can still want to move and think and clearly and whatnot. So very, uh, the timing as well as the selection of the medication, as well as the dosing is very important. And it's a very good thing that anesthesiologists nowadays are well-trained and they're very intelligent because most of the decisions they make are really based on experiential learning and on uh, their knowledge of the different medications. Because once a person is asleep, you know, whatever that means, they are not able to provide any input into how they're feeling. Are they awake? Are they feeling pain? You know, do they want to move? Are they moving? Those kind of things. Movement's the only thing we see, as well as the vital signs. And so one of the things Paul's early research started uh, doing was looking retrospectively at EEG. You know, we have, you know, EKGs for the heart and we have pulse ox and other ways to figure out the you know, pulmonary system. But we have a really powerful tool, EEG, to look at what's going on inside the brain, but it has not been utilized in anesthesia as much as it could be. And so Paul's work has shown that if you can titrate medications based on certain EEG parameters, that you can create a state of almost hybrid sleep during anesthesia, which is very restorative. And those who are maintained in a hybrid sleep pattern wake up better, faster from anesthesia. And it not only has immediate uh, consequences, but can also uh, affect long-term recovery and brain health in patients. So how do we titrate medications so that when you are asleep and there is nothing else we see in you except your blood pressure, your pulse, we can figure out what you need more or less of without overdosing or underdosing. Right. This is, this is one of, um, one of those very strong impressions that, um, was made upon me after speaking to Paul when he, uh, launches into, um, one of, uh, you know, when he gets very passionate, right. And, um, this type of decision-making, you never really want to hear that, uh, your doctors, the people taking care of you, right. It, it's just based on, uh, some kind of innate learned experience because that can lead to lots of subjectivity, presumably. Right. And there, there aren't a lot of, um, good measures or very specific guidelines and uh and even learning that they're not monitoring uh or they have no idea what's going on in your brain when they're delivering these medications that are actually affecting your brain was kind of a shocking somewhat shocking revelation or i never thought about it before but after hearing him go into it and sort of what can happen to the patients uh, it's made me very scared to go under anesthesia. <laughs> so. I would say, you know, when you think about medicine in general, there, you know, there's been a very accelerated period of 
really precise scientific knowledge that we've come into. Right. Medicine is two things. You know, when I had medical students, I'd always say there's the art of medicine and there's the science of medicine. And there is. And then the second part of medicine is learning all the rules. So, you know, which ones to follow and when to follow them, which ones to bend and which ones to break. And ultimately, that is what you're paying your physician for, right? You want them to have the experience, the knowledge, and the ability to extrapolate and to really look at each situation uniquely. And so that was how precision medicine was being done before we had the technology and the um, incredible amounts of data that we have nowadays, which can bias the way we give care. So those are, you know, so in a way, I don't want us to be scared of medicine because we continue to evolve and we continue to learn, we continue to grow. And each, each step of the way, I truly believe that a physician is doing the best they can to provide the most precision care. Right. However, you know, we have an opportunity. We do have brain monitors that are available right now. However, they're very outdated and they look at different ratios in the EEG signals, and they provide this very vague number. And there used to be a vague phrase, depth of anesthesia, that was thrown around a lot in the past, probably 10 to 15 years, if not, you know, 20 years. But what is the depth of anesthesia? You know, it's like saying, you know, the air quality index is one number, 26. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean it's a temperature's perfect, but you need an umbrella? Or does that mean that, you know, that, it's it's really cold, but it's sunny. So knowing what uh, axes are taken into consideration when you get a analytics or you know an index is what we're looking for. And right. as science has grown, we have the ability to tease out when a patient is feeling pain, even though they won't be able to tell you or move, versus when the patient is starting to have uh, more higher cortical function, meaning they're waking up. And so being able to tease out this information from the EEG signal is what Paul and his colleagues' patents are about. And how do we get this information? How do we get it in real time? And how can we provide this, present this information to an anesthesiologist so that it can guide their uh, choice of medications and their dosing? And one of the one of the most exciting uh, developments in this area really is right. The society is the uh, society for anesthesiology or one of the main societies is recognizing the gaps that exist. And I believe making changes or uh, to encourage movement in this direction and providing more information to the, to the clinicians. And I believe Paul is part of this uh, group. That's, that's, responsible for that. Is that right? Exactly. So there's multiple either aspects of our governing bodies or institutions themselves, both the European Society of Anesthesiology and the American Society of Anesthesiologists have something equivalent to call the Brain Health Initiative, where they would like every brain monitored during every anesthesia care setting. Um, that's been something that they, we've been trying to work towards. And then there's the Society for Neuroscience and Critical Care and Anesthesia, or SNAP, where they have tasked Paul with setting up an EEG interpretation class so that we can certify anesthesiologists to be able to read the EEG. I think what's important here is to understand that most anesthesiologists do not read EEG. 
EEG has been in the realm of neurologists and epilepsy and, you know, seizure disorder for so long. This application of even bringing EEG into real time, right? So with the neurologist, they would get an entire sleep study and read it. Or if someone is under status epilepticus, kind of look at the EEG waveforms, things like that. But bringing it into real time use in anesthesiology and then figuring out how to glean that information from, you know, a 12 lead EKG is really the purpose of what Paul and his colleagues are doing. So it's really the frontier of anesthesiology. And there is definitely a mandate out there to make brain monitoring standard. But how do we get there? And why haven't we gotten there? And how can we, you know, take the work that's being done to get to the point where you not just ask your anesthesiologist, how my blood pressure and pulse going to be monitored, but how's my brain going to be monitored? Right. Uh, so that's a perfect segue into uh, what is Lantern doing about that? And where where is Lantern right now in this uh, in this process, in this stage of company building and the endeavor to move the technology forward. Yep, perfect. So we are in the early stages. We are a very early stage startup incorporated in the end of towards the end of last year. We are building a uh, software as a medical device and a graphical user interface. And our goal is to be able to take EEG signals in real time and process them with our proprietary algorithms that tease out pain versus sedation and be able to present it to the clinician in a way that they can use it to, you know, dose, select uh, the medication and dose the medication. And so our initial steps have been to build um, a pre-prototype where we want to make sure that the EEG data we are getting from the patient is going to be clean and it's going to be amplified to the level we need it to be in order to be able to process it. This process is also important because one of our uh, patents is gives us the ability to be able to get signal from the brains of older patients from whom in the past getting a solid signal has been very hard. What happens as we age is the uh, ratio of the thickness of our skull to the parenchyma of the brain, the ratio changes, and we have a cortical atrophy. And so the signals you get when you place the EEG leads uh, you know, across the forehead are not as strong. What this has meant in the past is that anesthesiologists think, for example, that an older patient may be more sedated than they are or, you know, may, or may have uh, more pain medicine. So it changes the way they dose the medications. But uh, what we are able to do is to get the signal from an older aging brain, be able to assess it for the what's called a cognitive age or how healthy is this brain? Is this an 80-year-old with a 50-year-old's brain or is this a 50-year-old with an 80-year-old's brain? So be able to address cognitive age by just looking at the EEG signal, be able to amplify the EEG signal to be able to do this, and then to be able to then you know, go on to the next step of separating uh, analgesia from uh, sedation. Um, and so- really like personalized 
exactly. in a sense, yeah. right? Each person will get not just their age and their you know kidney functions, but how healthy is their brain? And what does that mean for the dosing of their medications? Because healthier brains uh, tend to, you know, usually require a different dosing of medications than not as healthier brains. And they can tolerate insult better in the recovery process. And so, um, you know, when we first started the company, it, we were thinking of building the entire monitor, the software, as well as the graphical user interface. And as we look into ways to gather this information, we really decided to focus on kind of the um, software as a medical device and then the uh, GUI or the graphical user interface. Um, because why reinvent the wheel when that, access of getting that EEG data from the patient has already been perfected. And so it changes our platform a little bit as to how we approach uh, prototype build, how we approach the FDA changes considerably with this alteration of our plans, and then ultimately who becomes, who is our customer changes. Because the customer then goes from the hospitals and the ambulatory surgery centers to potentially uh, the current manufacturers of EEG devices where we could take our technology and I don't want to say plug it in, but we would have to, you know, uh, get under their hood to be able to fit it, retrofit right. it into their monitors. Right. So uh, launching a startup is always compared to, or as compared to, um, or what people say, right? It's, it's, it takes a village, right? It's, it's, it, although you have, done an amazing job um, taking the lead on this, right? Um, the whole network of people, I mean, your the, the role itself is, is, a lot of it is fundraising, selling the idea, pitching to people who might be potential partners, customers, et cetera, and just getting people excited about your idea. So I wanted to hear a little bit about how has that, um, how has that gone? How have you found it? Um, I know you've recently gone through some friends and family fundraising um, and been uh, put in touch with a, a series of, of mentors and advisors from your previous lives and current lives. So um, how has this uh, journey been for you? Yeah, I, I would say the journey um, has been really just amazingly educational for me. Because no, at no point in my life up to, you know, October, November of last year was I thinking pitches and, you know, fundraising per se, because I've always been in a different aspect of healthcare and of management. And um, I think ultimately there's a lot of positive energy I feel towards Columbia Technology Ventures and the work that they had done with Paul prior to me coming on and the amount of support I've gotten, uh, you know, from Cindy, from Devin, from Oren, from Conley, you know, and, and the uh, XIRs. Um, and so it was a very steep learning curve for me. I um, was, I very, Peripherally helped Paul prepare for the October pitch day, but it became very clear at that point, um, you know, Paul's clinical schedule and the kind of other work he was doing in his lab and how that's really where I, I needed to fit in everywhere that he wasn't, you know, either writing papers, doing clinical research, or thinking about how to build this device. And so, you know, I think with CTV, 
guys sent me books, you get, you know, sent me videos, webinars, like really just learn how, you, yeah, <laughs> how do you write, you know, how do you write an executive summary? It's something that I'd never done in my life before. I've written summaries or, you know, uh, you know, project assessments, things like that. And so all of that was just this incredibly steep learning curve for me, but I felt like I had the support in particular of CTV. I also did pull in uh, people from my past lives. Um, and that was, I was amazed at the breadth of knowledge that other people had, but also more importantly, that they were willing to share with me. And so um, it was, uh, yeah, a lot of different things, pitches, slide decks, executive summary, meeting people, speaking about something that I wasn't the authority on, um, you know, and just a lot of that learning from just hanging around Paul for many years, proofreading grants, things like that. Um, so anyway, it's been an amazing journey. I have met incredible numbers of people, not just in private equity, venture capital, angel investors. Um, I've applied now for multiple programs and knock on wood, we've been very successful with the programs that we've applied for. You know, I think if nothing else, we've been, if, if not awarded, but finalist in almost everything we've applied for. And so now it's maintaining fundraising and then building a product that we can, you know, bring and show and uh, really use to gather the data and get our indication. Right. And you recently received some good news from uh, from NIA, NIA, is that right? National Institute of Aging? Our most recent win was uh, we applied for the National Institutes of Aging NIH Startup Challenge and Accelerator Program. And this is a program that's, uh, this is through the NIA and it's focused on Alzheimer's and related dementia research and in the aging population, as well as underrepresented population. And so there's usually about 400 businesses that apply and 20 are chosen. And we are one of the 20 chosen. That's very exciting. Yep. Uh, so one final question, just for fun. Uh, how, how has it been transitioning to this role where you're basically working with your partner who you live with yeah. every day? It's been, it's been very interesting. Um, even though I, as a surgeon and Paul as an anesthesiologist have never worked clinic clinically together, except one time that I was telling Cindy about yesterday when <laughs> um, I was in private practice and I was adjunct faculty at Emory and I used to have medical students shadow me. So the one time I worked with my husband clinically was when he was my medical student and he shadowed me for the day, did surgery with me and saw patients with me. This was obviously many years ago. Um, after that, we've never really worked together. And it was definitely something that I had to go into with, you know, eyes wide open, knowing that, um, you know, boundaries and, you know, when to have conversations about the company and when not to, um, how to um, take how to take the emotion out of certain decisions that need to be made. And so this has been a process. It's been a really good learning process. And uh, I've looked to my advisors as well as internally to make sure that at all times, um, I'm true to my position as CEO, as well as being true to my position as Paul's significant other in life. The other aspect of this is working from home and um, that, and also at this point, you know, going from a very well compensated chief medical officer of a large healthcare platform to, um, you know, a lot of uh, sweat equity, literally. 
Staffing startup founder. (laughs) Yes. And both of those have been emotionally difficult for me in that it's wrapping my head around what I'm doing. Um, I think society has a way of saying, if you don't get paid for it, you're not doing something of value. And, you know, and um, I've always been the, you know, the person who was working. So, so that's been a great process, but it's made me understand how much value a human being brings to a situation, regardless of what it is, and that how money, salary, compensation, really in no way, shape, or form is a direct, um, you know, direct factor in that. Right. Um, it's not a direct then, I've also learned to budget time better. Uh, you know, <laughs> I could work all day. I could get up in the morning and work from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., but I need to take time to do the things that are other parts of my life. So. It's been a lot of growing, a lot of learning. It's great. It's been it's been wonderful working with you and continue to work together as we get this company to the next level. I'm very excited about that. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I guess we'll open it up for questions. Uh, Laura, Laura Amos says, do you have any opinions? about being a woman starting a tech startup? Yes, I know that we are in the minority. um, And one of the um, kind of struggles I've had is to be able to get the audience to get the in uh, with um, certain, you know, with, with private equity, as well as venture capital. The second is also the fact that, um, I am not an anesthesiologist, so that aspect of it has been very important. And I, I pitched um, one of my first pitches was to a very prominent neurosurgeon here at Columbia, and uh, Paul was, you know, supposed to be there with me. And of course, Paul was, you know, stuck in the operating room. And so I, you know, introduced myself and I gave the pitch. And I think that was one of the most nervous I've ever been because here I was pitching you know, uh, anesthesiology device to a neurosurgeon. And I work, you know, completely the other end of the body clinically. And, um, but it also gave me a lot of confidence in after I was done, realizing how much I do know about the subject. So I think it's really kind of getting in there, getting that audience, being prepared to give that 10 second, 30 second, 10 minute uh, pitch, and making sure you know what you're talking about and being able to say, I don't know the answer to that question. If you don't know the answer to that question. I think not getting discouraged also, and just having eternal optimism about, you know, pushing, pushing through. Right. Yeah. I think that's hard on a day-to-day basis, but on a week to week, month to month basis, I feel very confident and excited, but catch me on a not so good day. And I will, probably burst into tears, (laughs) but it's all good. It's been a great learning experience. 